You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I have another special guest, Martha Hunt Handler. She is the board president of the Wolf Conservation Center. Hello, Martha. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. I'm so happy to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much. We're, we're excited to have you talk a lot about you know gray wolves and maybe some other canids. It's just a favorite topic of ours and a lot of our listeners. So thank you for, for agreeing to be on the podcast. Nothing I'd rather be doing than talking wolves, so glad to be here. Yeah, I know. They're so fascinating. They're so fascinating. So just to always start off, I, I always like to ask your background, you know, your education, and then how that led you into getting involved in animal conservation. Sure. So I grew up in rural Illinois on the Wisconsin border and pretty much surrounded by woodlands. My brothers were eight and 10 years older than me. My parents were very busy. So I spent a lot of my time roaming the woods around my house and I could actually hear the flora and fauna speaking to me, which sounds probably odd, but I didn't know that other people couldn't do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were sending me warning signals. They were very scared and I couldn't figure it out for a while until I was about six when they started knocking down all the woodlands to build more homes. So I guess we were the first home in that whole subdivision. And it was really sad. And when I would tell people and my parents, you got to stop this. This is not good for the environment. You know, they kind of thought I was crazy. And I became pretty obvious to me that I must be a voice for animals and plants that I wouldn't be given a gift that no one else seems to have if it wasn't for a purpose. So that was always in the back of my mind. I graduated high school early at 16. I wanted to go out of state and had to be a resident to be able to afford it. My car broke down in Steamboat, Colorado. (sighs) Not a bad place to be. No, no, no. (laughs) Uh, Then I went to school at University of Colorado Boulder a year later. Uh, first majored in environmental engineering because I thought that was going to have something to do with the environment, but yeah, it didn't didn't quite work for me and uh, decided to make up my own major, which was environmental conservation, mm-hmm. which is probably a pretty popular uh, major now, but this was 1977 and no one had ever heard of such things, but you know, I put this thing together and luckily was able to uh, get a job in Washington, D.C. quickly after. So it, it all worked out. Yeah, it's funny you say that because when I was a professor at the University of Florida, I did a lot of freshman orientation every year and, and met with hundreds of students. And you'd be surprised the environmental degrees for us, at least at, at you know UF, which is a major university in the country, really didn't start coming online until about 10 years ago. Where oh, wow. Yeah, really focused. I mean, there was conservation biology, but now I think environmental engineering, some of that stuff is actually becoming more of a popular major. And I know a lot of our listeners are young, you know, either wanting to go to college and do something with conservation. So so hopefully you give them some inspiration with that, because that's amazing that you did that back then. 
Now, briefly, because we really want to get into the work that you're doing with, with wolves and wolf, wolf conservation, but can you just talk about some of the stuff you did in D.C.? You know, you're working with environmental consulting. You got to see how the government works. Uh, for us yes. outsiders, it, it just seems like, I don't know, for me, sometimes not to be a pessimist, we always try to be optimists, especially in this podcast, but <laughs> you know, it just seems like there's so many hurdles. It just is something like climate change should be a, a slam dunk. But, right. So I, yeah. um, I worked for a private consulting firm, but almost all the contracts that I worked under were for one part of the federal government or another. I started out being a community specialist um, for the EPA at very super fun sites. I don't really even hear about them anymore, but there are sites, and I'm sure they still exist, where they either cannot find who the polluter was, uh, the pollution is so bad that the person or company that did it can't afford to clean it up, or they're still trying to figure out maybe it's more than one company based on what kind of things they're finding in the water or the soil or yeah, things like that. So I was basically going out and to the communities, talking to them, telling them the timelines and cleanup remedies that we were going to use and getting their feedback and trying to answer their questions, which was <laughs> Not the most fun job because you can imagine timelines are very slow when you have the government working on something. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Next, I worked on uh, Department of Energy contracts for nuclear power plants, monitoring their compliance with waste stream requirements. And then the last place I worked before I left the field was writing the new regs for transporting and storing hazardous waste chemicals and materials. So, you know, so many very different things, but I mean, the skills for me were mostly writing. I mean, and I was always encourage young people. I don't, I still don't think you can really have a better skill than being a good writer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now that's a good point, especially today, like with emails, it's just, even I find myself, you know, as a college professor, I've, I've written thousands, I've written a book, I've written thousands of pages of stuff <laughs> and still in my emails, I'm like, okay, you know, you drop into that short Yes, it's, it's not a narrative. So yeah, I, I agree with you. But, you know, really quickly working with the, within the government, do you see hope? I mean, just your opinion, what you've seen in the last few years with this previous administration, with Biden coming in now, because I know the EPA got hit pretty hard in the US, they were watering down the Endangered Species Act. You know, is exactly. there hope out there? Yeah. There's always hope and we have to feel like there always is. Um, and I think when things look their darkest, it's when we really need to jump in and get involved in one way or the other. And yeah, I have new hope with a new administration and uh, a new head of the interior. I think it's, a lot of things are being reversed already. And I hope it's a favorable administration for wolves, which we've been led to believe that we should have hope. So we're all crossing our fingers. And I think, you know, maybe for your listeners, I think the environment is such a big topic, cleaning it up or climate change or, you know, to really focus on what pulls at your heart the most and go after that because it's easy with all the bad news coming in every day to feel overwhelmed and scattered. And I think if you focus and keep yourself focused, you'll really be able to accomplish 
and make real changes. It's true. And that's why, you know, we, there are optimistic stories out there. It's just, we got to highlight them more. And obviously in the news, it's always negative, negative, negative. They don't really highlight a lot of the positives. So we try to, you know, at least Angie and I, we, we try to be balanced in, in how we present stuff to our audience, but yeah, it's, it, we're going to get to some of the news with wolves, especially with what is going on in Idaho. But I would like to ask you, you know, what drew you to wolves and, and, you know, why did you choose to start working with them specifically? So it was interesting when I was a child, also probably four or five years old, I started having one black wolf that would show up in my dreams and was always sort of pointing me in a direction that I wasn't looking. So maybe this group of friends over here might be a little better for you, or this might be a subject that you look at more deeply. Um, And it was really funny. And I never really thought about it that much actually, but if someone had said, you know, what is your totem animal? I would always say a wolf, even though I'd never seen one. And, you know, fast forward, boy, 30 something odd years later, we, our family, we have four children. We moved from Los Angeles to uh, the suburbs of New York. We're about an hour outside of New York city. And all of a sudden I started hearing wolves howling. So I thought this was kind of crazy. I know wolves have been, you know, driven out, completely massacred in New York over a hundred years before Mm -hmm. that. So it didn't make any sense to me. And I'm asking everybody I can, why am I hearing wolves? And no one either doesn't believe me or thinks they're coyotes. But I was like, no, this is a very different sound. Mm -hmm. And one day I just wandered into the woods behind my house and there was an enclosure with three wolves and a trailer beside it. And I knocked on the trailer and this beautiful French girl answered the door and told me that she wanted to open up the wolf conservation center. And wow could really use some help. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, basically you're in my backyard. And this is what sort of, I always wanted to do in my life. And it was a perfect timing because I had stopped being an environmental consultant, thought I would just spend my time raising our four kids. And all of a sudden this landed in my lap and it just couldn't have been more perfect. Isn't it funny how life works that way? It just, it shows you the path and you go down it and you stumble into stuff. Like it just, it's amazing. That's amazing. Amazing. they are. And it, it, you saying that, I mean, since you, you lived in California for a while, it harkens to my childhood hearing coyotes howling. And and I've brought that up in the po- in previous podcasts where it used to scare me as a kid. But yeah. now as, a, as an adult, I'm like, oh, when I see coyotes, I'm just excited to see them. And, you know, it's just wildlife. It just, oh, it does something when you see it. So I, I want to ask you, okay, so you have a backyard or three wolves in, in, in an enclosure. How did you start this conservation center then? That, that must be fascinating. Right. So we did some research and found out that the two most critically endangered wolf species were the red wolves and the Mexican gray wolves and found out, you know, that they actually really needed help because the numbers were so bad. So when they started the, um, Mexican gray wolf study. It was 1998. They found only seven left in the wild and they brought those into captivity to start the breeding and pre-release captive program. And the red wolves were in 1973, there was only 14 in the world and they were brought into 
captivity. So that really got us excited. Okay, so now we have like what our plan is. So from there, we realized that not many people knew about the importance of wolves, that they are apex predators, you know, and sit on top and are responsible for so many other critters and uh, flora in their environment. So in the little trailer, <laughs> um, we started teaching people, sometimes two people at a time, sometimes 10 people is about the most we could have in there. And we used our three wolves that she had originally purchased, which are gray wolves, not endangered, never going to be released as our teaching animals because we realized we couldn't get anyone up to learn about wolves unless they could actually see wolves. And then we started working with um, Fish and Wildlife Service to make us a partner in their program so that they would start sending wolves as we built more and more enclosures. So today we see well, if it wasn't COVID times, we see about 40,000 um, people a year hmm. on our campus. And we teach millions more all around the world through um, uh, other, you know, learning, remote learning techniques right. and our social media platforms. Um, we also advocate on their behalf. So we, through our social media, because we have uh, millions of followers, so if there's a bill that needs people to sign on to or, you know, any kind of protesting we're doing or give a call to this senator or this governor, we've got a huge base from which to do that. And that's been gigantic for us. Um, we also join like Defenders of Wildlife and others um, in lawsuits that have something to do with the red wolves, the Mexican gray wolves, because a lot of those programs are not really being followed the way the law has asked them to follow them. And then, um, yeah, th so thirdly, we, we're breeders and pre-releases for those two animals. And that has become, uh, it's, we're at the point of a frozen zoo. We, we do artificial inseminations. We uh, now freeze egg and sperm. Wolves don't really like to be moved around a lot. And they have to be based on their, this huge um, Fish and Wildlife Department genetic algorithm of who is the most genetically valuable males and females and mating them up. So if a, you know, a couple might get put together and they might not necessarily like each other and want to uh, have babies together. So then one of them has got to be moved somewhere else. So it's this whole huge balancing act. It's, it's really unbelievable that we let species get to these small numbers and have to go to these lengths to try to bring them back. And then we have all sorts of fun programs. We have uh, camps and after-school programs, uh, a great program called Camping with Wolves. So you get to listen to them all night long since that's when they're doing most of their howling. And we're just about to start a big capital campaign to raise funds to build a bigger education pavilion and more permanent, permanent camping pods because the ones we have are just flimsy tents. So in our weather here, we don't get to use them so much. So that'll be fun. And we're currently home. It changes all the time since wolves, as I said, are being moved around a lot. But we currently have 39 wolves, three ambassadors, 21 Mexican gray wolves, and 15 red wolves. And uh, we're, you know, this is the time when they have their pups. So we all have our fingers crossed. We have four potential couples that could um, produce pups. So we hope so. Nice. I, I, I want to jump ahead real quick. What's the current status of... I guess we can start with the red wolves because we did cover them a couple years ago. 
but what is the latest on them? How are they doing? You know, that population, is it still surviving in North Carolina? Uh, They were talking about moving them. So what's the current status of the red wolves? So they're as of May, 2021, there's 10 known. And we know that because they've been radio colored red wolves in the wilds of Northeastern North Carolina. Um, and there's 250 in captive breeding programs like our own. And the, it's really sad because the wolf, the red wolf population peaked at over 100 individuals in t- 2006. And because of inaction and mismanagement on the Department of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Department, coupled with illegal killings, um, it's led to an incredibly steep decline. So there were no litters born in 2019 and 2020. So we pretty sure there's no viable breeding pairs in those 10 that are left. In 2018, a federal judge ruled that they had a duty under the ESA to protect and conserve red wolves and that their decisions to halt wild releases and allow landowners to kill the wolves violated the legal requirements. And then in November 2020, the Southern Environmental Law Center sued the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Department for violations of the ESA connected to the agency's new policies that prohibit proven management strategies to recover world's only remaining population of these wolves. Um, In January 2021, the U.S. District Court ruled that they have to develop a plan by March 1st, Mm -hmm. and the court order temporarily prohibits the agency from implementing its recent policy change bearing the release of captive wolves into the wild. So we're, we're really right now just waiting for news because mm-hmm. it should be very imminent that they have to come up, you know, show us their plan and the wolves have to really start to be released quickly. So yeah, everyone yeah. pray that it goes our way and that it happens mm-hmm. quickly. Are they going to release them back in North Carolina? I know there was a lot of problems with locals shooting them, claiming, you know, quote unquote, they were coyotes. Yes, they are going to be released in in that part of North okay. Carolina. And there, yeah, there is no other sanctioned place for them to be released. And yeah, the coyotes are a problem because as soon as they cross breed with them, they're no longer, you know, genetically pure species right. and then they're not protected. Right. Yeah. I know that was a big issue with them. Oh. All right. Fingers crossed for them. And then the Mexican gray wolves, wh- how are they doing? What's their status? Um, so the Mexican gray wolves, Um, which are a subspecies of the gray wolves, unlike the red wolves, which are a completely separate species, are currently in in Arizona and in New Mexico, and they are federally protected. And today there are supposedly about 186 in the wild. So, you know, a a fair amount. Mm -hmm. And they're doing much better than North Carolina with working with the ranchers in the area and they are doing cross fostering of pups and they are talking about also releasing adults. So we, that's a more hopeful situation at this point. Yeah. It's just two, two different biomes, two different species. It's just, it's just crazy how one just, I mean, I can see it in North Carolina, you know, a lot of people there. So, you know, where Arizona is a little bit more sparse in the desert. Now the, the big species, gray wolves in North America, the obviously focus is the reintroduction in the lower 48 states within the United States. So for our international listeners, we, you know, we have Alaska way up there in the North and then we have Hawaii, but we call the main part of, you know, 
the United States, the lower 48. So gray wolves were coming back, you know, in particularly in the, in the Western part. And then I guess in the North, what is their status, I guess, in that particular part of the world, I guess, just the lower 48 U.S.? Right. So there are documented gray wolf populations in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Oregon, Washington, California, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Colorado, and of course, as you said, Alaska. There are no gray wolves in the U.S. save the small population of Mexican gray wolves in Arizona and New Mexico have federal endangered species protection um, because President Trump delisted them in late October, which took effect on January 4th, 2021. So it's, it's a state by state. Mm-hmm. There's so many different things going on. Obviously the, the Idaho is hugely disappointing to all of us. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're, well, I'll just go over some key points of what's going on in Idaho. And right, it is right. unfortunately has happened and it's too late. The governor has signed the bill. So that won't be turning back for a while. Um, but the reason, you know, they were just so off on everything that they were telling people. The three-year average wolf kill is 0.004% of sheep and cattle in Idaho. I mean, <laughs> You're right, ridiculous. Right. It is. There's... 40,000 cattle are lost every year in Idaho to non-predator like diseases and weather. It's 350 times the number lost to wolves. Idaho legislators want to spend almost $600,000 to kill 90% of the wolves in Idaho, which amounts to $5,221 for each cow or sheep killed by wolves. Hmm. The number of elk in Idaho is 120,000, which is 5,000 below the all-time elk high count of 125,000. 2020 was the seventh straight year when the elk harvest in Idaho was more than 20,000 elk, and it was the sixth largest of all time. Idaho Fish and Game calls this the golden age of elk hunting in Idaho. Mm-hmm. The Idaho elk population is not appreciatively changed since 1995 when wolves were reintroduced. Um, yeah, I mean, I can go on and on and on, but their science is just so incredibly far off for them to blame it, you know, on declining elk populations and, you know, that the ranchers just can't support themselves because wolves are taking out so many numbers of cattle and sheep. It's just, it's really backwards thinking. And it's really sad that that whole state is bowing down to a few people. Right. So, okay. Yeah, well, I really want to unravel this because it is such a hot topic issue and it, it can pop up in, in other states. So again, for our international listeners, um, like Martha said earlier, there was federal protection, meaning the, the United States government did protect the wolves. Then President Trump took that away. So now it's down to the states, the individual states that can regulate the wolves. So this particular state, which is Idaho, which is in the western portion of the country, had just passed legislation uh, within last week that they can go, they want to kill 90% of the wolf population. And their population is about 1,500 in Idaho right now, correct? Yes. Yeah. Right. And they want to keep it down to a population of less than 100. So it's a mass killing of wolves. And, and, and I, will, I do want to ask you a little bit later why wolves are so important to an ecosystem. So I, I guess the big question is why? Is it because they, it's the elk and 
livestock? Is that is there that is why? no rational explanation? Yeah. But you know, a lot of people thought that I was kind of crazy to be <laughs> a wolf protector. You know, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. where I grew up in Illinois near Wisconsin, they just didn't really see you know of all things to get involved in. You know, there's babies starving to death, and you're sitting there, you know, worried about basically a dog and I like, well, right, it's right. a little, a little bigger than that. But um, when they were protected by the federal government, the federal government relies on studies, they use science. And when they were taken off the federal endangered protection list, it meant that now states have control and states, the fish and wildlife department in, in every single state only makes money off of hunting and fishing licenses. So, you know, they don't see any tourist dollars in like Wyoming when anyone goes to Yellowstone to see a wolf. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They only see money when they sell a wolf hunting license. So for them, a dead wolf <laughs> is worth so much more than a live wolf, right. which just means nothing to them. So they're, you know, they're they're not in the right place to be making these decisions because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not fair for the rest of us that, I mean, I would say the planet's wildlife shouldn't be decided by any special interest, you know, including, right. you know, ranchers and hunters. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Idaho is, yeah, a problem right now. And what we're doing at the Wolf Conservation Center is just really encouraging supporters to call on President Joe Biden and Interior Secretary Deb Halen to restore federal environmental um, protections for wolves. And the evidence is clear. Uh, it's it's something that we need to do. And we need to do it quickly before it's too late because yeah. to build those populations back up again takes really a long time. So, you know, there's been some solutions that we are pushing now. The Center for Biological Diversity is asking the U.S. government to cut off millions of dollars to Idaho that is used to improve wildlife habitat and outdoor recreation opportunities because of the legislation. Right. And... Last year, they received $18 million in Pittman-Robertson funding, which comes from a tax on sporting firearms and ammunition. So you know, it's just, again, they make money from, a, from hunting, not from trying to save any species. Is there nothing that could be done it, it, to, to put it into the court system to, to halt this? Any emergency you know, lawsuits or anything? It's too late on the, on a state level. It would really okay. have to be, you know, our interior secretary taking Wills back in. Yeah. Okay. 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 So that's where the pressure needs to be. All right. All right. Yes. Well, we'll keep our eyes to that. I mean, oh, okay. One of the things I, I, I read about this is how they're going to hunt the wolves. So, you know, in, in our podcast, we're very neutral on hunting. We have hunters that listen, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, we, we can see the benefits on, on help, helping keep certain populations under control. Even had an episode on trophy hunting and, and, you know, we've addressed that before. So this isn't, you know, how people think a hunter going out tracking an animal. I mean, one of the things I read is how these wolves can be hunting. I mean, it's just basically go out there and slaughter them, right? I mean, slaughter. Yeah. So, you know, year round trapping season, bounties are paid for wolf carcasses. They use snowmobiles and ATVs to chase them down and uh, snares, poison in the den, mm-hmm. gassing the dens. It's really, it's really horrible. And, I, you know, I'm, 
I'm from a huge hunting family, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm with you. But my family was all about, you know, doing it in a very sustainable way. Mm-hmm. And I think 99% of hunters feel the same way. Um, there's just a few bad apples and they seem to be <laughs> able to get to their politicians somehow. Right. Not sure how. No, I know. I mean, I get it. Hunting, you know, for food and, and, and I've had venison before, you know, it's, I get it. You know, my family too. It's, this is just wholesale slaughter of an animal because of misinformation. And, you know, I know the governor there is supposedly a sheep rancher and it, it just, it just defies logic because, oh, just, oh, so what, one of the things before, you know, we move on a little bit is I read, they can kill cubs, right? They can go in the den and kill all the cubs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They can poison them. Yeah. They can put gas in there that'll wipe them all out. It's really, Oh, it's horrifying. It's it, um, humans are horrifying sometimes. All right, but there's people like you out there that give us a lot of hope that are fighting for these animals, and that's why we we love having you on and telling your stories, and you tell the stories of these species. So, I guess my big question is because you know we talk about the Idaho thing, and I'm running through my mind from your perspective: why are wolves so important to an ecosystem? You know, I could tell you that they're, because they're apex predators, they have the most effect on an ecosystem all the way down the entire food chain, including, you know, the flora. But the truth is that every single animal on our planet has a really specific purpose. And everything's here for a reason. And it's like this incredible, amazing system. I mean, However you believe, whoever set this up couldn't have done it in a more perfect way. And so everything deserves to be well taken care of. And I think we, with our big brains, are supposed to be stewards of the planet. And instead, it seems like we're just completely taking advantage of everything. I'm always stepping back thinking, what is the purpose of humans? (laughs) Mm -hmm, Seems mm -hmm. like everything was perfect until we came and started just really messing with it and not, you know, kind of seeing the bigger picture that we're a part of. I just listened to uh, a great YouTube video by a bunch of uh, native American tribes that got together to try to explain to their tribes what they thought COVID is, why it's here and what they should do about the vaccine. And I thought it was really interesting because they said, you know, from all that we know, COVID was transferred from an animal to people. And it's the planet's way of saying, wake up. Things are really out of balance. We're going to do something drastic now because you haven't been listening to, you know, a lot of other things that we've thrown at you. So this one's going to be really serious. And then they said, and you have to take the vaccine because the vaccine is also created by, people who are part of the planet who, you know, have a soul and it's a means to stop this. And if we're paying attention and doing something and the COVID really shook us up to make some real positive moves, then, you know, it's a, it's yes, take the vaccine, let's end this and let's make real changes. Otherwise there's going to be something else coming right down the pipeline if we don't make change. No, it's true. Nature does like to be in balance. And, you know, the next pandemic, knock on wood, could be even more horrifying 
you know, and even more contagious things like that. And, you know, try to stay positive as we, we all come out of this in the next couple of years. I mean, it's still a year later and it, 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 it's just uh, the the world, you know, and I'm lucky I'm in New Zealand where I don't have to deal with it day in, day out, but seeing the news stories, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrifying. And, and I agree, we need to wake up. And I think it's important to point out too, for our listeners, you know, here is the United States, you know, progressive, progressive, a a Western, you know, (laughs) civilized, you know, whatever uh, society. And, we're destroying our environment. I mean, because we always, you know, we always try to highlight, like, you know, look at what's going on in Africa, Asia, South America, Amazon rainforest, even highlight some of the stuff going down with Australia, you know, point the finger, take care of your animals when we're not doing it back home. So here's a big story within our own borders of the United States where, you know, we're not protecting these animals because, you know, I don't know if you want to expand on it a little bit. We 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 have talked about it. If if people aren't aware, the Yellowstone ecosystem is one of the the major studies where the reintroduction of wolves completely rehabilitated that ecosystem. Correct. Correct. So if you haven't, if you're you know, listeners haven't watched uh, how wolves change rivers, it's an amazing YouTube video, and you really see quickly because the the way the footage is sped up. I mean, basic Yellowstone had become a complete wasteland because they go after the ungulates, which are anything with a big hoof. And when they don't have any predator around, they just overgraze because why wouldn't they? So when they do that, they there's no tree saplings that can grow. Um, so it's just basically all becomes a, a horrible grassland and it keeps flooding because there's no trees to push it into the riverbanks. So the rivers were disappearing very rapidly. So that means, you know, the otters and the beavers, they have no reason to be there if there's not water in a stream. The songbirds don't have any reason to be there because there's no trees for them to hang out in. Um, and it goes on and on. All the the chipmunks and the muskrats and everything that relied on whatever the wolves were leaving behind had nothing to eat. So it was just a basic huge park for a bunch of Buffalo and elk. Mm-hmm. And when wolves were brought in very quickly, all of a sudden those Buffalo and elk started acting like they're supposed to, they nibbled a little and kept going because they could smell that there was wolves around and they didn't want to get eaten. So it just like, it, it's so magical what happens and everyone that's what our theories were, what would happen. But I don't think anyone believed that it could happen as quickly as it did. So it was miraculous to watch. And I'm really glad that that was all documented and so well done. Um, yeah. Yeah. Amazing creatures considering how small they really are, that they have such a huge impact. No. Yeah. And they're, Oh Jesus, like a year or two ago, I read a study, I mean, out of India, with the reintroduction of tigers in a certain area actually helped farmers because they had herbivores coming in, destroying crops, you know, bringing in a, a tiger into the area, kept them away because they, wow. they moved higher up the mountain and everything. And it just, and even, you know, even though a tiger would take, you know, a cow every now and then or a goat, 
it, it kept leopards away where the losses for, for the ranchers or, you know, the, the livestock owners and the farmers of the plants, it just, it was a benefit to the ecosystem there. It benefited farmers and then it benefits the ecosystem. So this whole Idaho thing, just, it, it just has me scratching my head. It's it baffling. just came up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're getting lots of calls from all over Europe. So wolves are starting to make huge inroads back um, to a bunch of different countries that they haven't been in, in hundreds of years. And, you know, we want to help them as much as they can because those big, bad wolf myths been around in Europe longer than they've been around here. And they Mm -hmm. really, they took hold and you really want to get on top of that kind of stuff and get your people Mm -hmm. educated. So the, the fear goes away. Um, Yeah. It's really unfortunate that (laughs) I have a bumper sticker that says little red riding hood lied. And I love when (laughs) people are like, what does that mean? Like, because you know, that was a myth as far as they can really interpret that was really meant to be like, keep away from strangers, you know, don't Mm -hmm. just talk and go along with somebody that promises you something or looks good. Um, Yeah. Just be weary of strangers. And unfortunately they used a wolf and those images really stick with people. And that's a hard thing to overcome. There's um, a wonderful group now led by uh, a friend called uh, the working circle. And one of the biggest problems has been for years that you could not get ranchers, hunters, and conservationists together. They would not sit in a room together. They fights would break out or they just wouldn't both go to the same meeting. And she was somehow has managed to kind of infiltrate (laughs) to get to know these ranchers, you know, and like for the ranchers, like she really understood, came to understand that yes, they are eventually going to slaughter their cattle. Mm-hmm. But until they do, they really do consider them their pets. They feel like a real responsibility to take care of them. So when they come across one that's been ripped across, you know, ripped apart by a wolf, mm-hmm. it really is a painful situation for them and a painful image, not, you know, also the cost and everything else. But, um, you know, she has lived and worked on cattle ranchers. She has spent hours and hours with hunters to try to come up with compromises. And there are plenty, Um, you know, cattle, like all animals were once wild and they had to deal with wolves all the time. And they would keep together in tight circles as they grazed, keeping their young and elderly and diseased in the center. And to a wolf, they would all be pointed outwards. So it looked really scary. No wolf in his right mind is going to attack this gigantic circle of mm-hmm. mean looking animals. Um, so she is working with 4-H to bring back range riders that teach. And she thinks it takes about three generations of cattle to restore that instinct that they had so long ago. Uh, the same thing can be done with sheep. The problem is when they're let go on federal properties and they're just allowed to roam all over, mm-hmm. then, you know, they kind of are sitting ducks. Um, she's worked with them to do um, flagellation. So just flags, just enough flags around because wolves get really easily startled. And when they see that, they're not going to approach um, the domestic animals. Right. And yeah, they're just, there are really things that we can do to make this work for everybody. 
So it's sad, yeah, when you have a state like Idaho that just decides to take them all out and, you know, considers them vermin, because that's not, it's not fair to our planet and to the rest of us who, you know, I feel like there are animals. (laughs) Just because they reside in Idaho doesn't mean that They're literally catering to a handful of people. Right. You know, a handful of ranchers and maybe a few hunters that are upset that they couldn't get an elk last year and they blame it on wolves, you know, not their terrible hunting skills or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it is frustrating from, from a conservation point of view. And it, when you were talking about that, it, it made me think of one of my favorite interviews that I did was with Greg Rasmussen with the African painted dogs, very similar situation. Ranchers in Zimbabwe were killing these dogs because maybe occasionally take, take a cow. And I think he went in there and showed him it, it wasn't them. It was leopards and tigers, right. tigers, lions, <laughs> no tigers in Africa people. Um, but he was able to educate them and change their way of thinking where now they're like helping protect the painted dogs because there's only a, a few thousand of them left on the planet. So. Right. He's a, Oh, he's such a good, yeah. he's a good egg. He comes and does, um, some talks at the Wolf Conservation Center and I've really grown to love him and the way he handles the whole situation because that's what we need to, we need to reach across the aisle as we do in so many different things. We can't, you know, let ourselves to be divided and think that there's no way we can come to compromises. Right. I mean, yeah, it benefits everybody. That's the thing with some of this stuff. It's like right. the planet, we all live on the planet. It shouldn't be politics. It should be, us working together. That's what's frustrating sometimes. So for wolves, I guess I want to start at the, the international picture. Are there other protections in place globally? Cause you talked about in Europe. So are there some concerns there or some countries looking to eradicate wolves or try to, or anything like that? I know that it's, it's very controversial because I was, it was actually, I was, this is a good story, but I was, went to Austria because I was having horrible stomach pains and I'd been to like every specialist in New York and no one could figure out what was wrong with me. I went to um, a clinic in Austria where they have, you see a bunch of different kinds of doctors and medical and non-medical alike. And um, one of the people I had to see was a shaman and the shaman put me into a trance and then woke me up and said, do you do something with wolves? And I said, Yes. And he said, okay, I'm putting you back in your trance. And then when I came out of it, he said, so I had like 50 wolves in my office and the wolves are telling you, you need to stay in your wolf lane that your stomach is hurting you because you become some, so unfocused with all the other environmental disasters that you're, you're scattered around too much. And it was so true. Every, as soon as I refocus on wills my stomach pains that i'd had for three years just completely disappeared and mm-hmm. i can sometimes feel it happening now too like oh oh no there's this thing and then i'm like my stomach's like nope 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 not, not your problem you know right. so i think we all have to find whatever it is that that we love but i was wearing a, a t-shirt in austria that had the wolf conservation center onto it with a big picture of a wolf and someone started yelling at me and I was like, wow, what? And they're like, we don't want the wolves in Austria. <laughs> that was the first time that <laughs> I sort of understood that they are definitely making their way back and over. Mm-hmm. So they're in Portugal and I think they're pretty well tolerated there, but it is a problem in Europe because their prey species is not big anymore. They don't have mm-hmm. a lot of 
elk and deer. So they're going to have to do a lot of work right. to make, you know, this work for everybody. It's going to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. And then within the U S are there other States looking to do what Idaho did? Yeah. So Wisconsin, just a, a month after the delisting rules took place, they offered an alarming demonstration of the consequences because they opened up a hunting uh, season that left 216 wolves dead within 60 hours. And that was not what was supposed to happen, but Mm -hmm. they had no idea how, how many people were going to go out hunting for them. Um, So that was about 33% of the population in three days. And 85% of those were hunted down by packs of dogs. It's a ruthless and controversial practice. That's only allowed in Wisconsin. Um, where else? Montana is just about the same as Idaho. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wyoming, they um, allow wolves to be hunted 365 days a year. They're classified as shoot on site vermin. So, even with the benefits of the Yellowstone in the state of Wyoming, that's where it is, showing how the wolves have benefited their own ecosystem in their backyards, they still want to get rid of them. Right. And with the science about, yeah, when elk populations decline, it's almost always weather related or a disease related. It's never wolves. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like the prion disease that we saw in deer populations. I think that was in elk populations. Like, uh, all right. (laughs) It's, uh, this is why we bring wolves back in this podcast because it, it just it shows how politics and small small special interests can really affect the species it just it, that's why we need to educate and and enlighten people on what's going on so so you wrote a book winter of the wolf and, and so I want to talk about that for a little bit what inspired you to write? Obviously you love wolves, but it, I mean, to write a novel, I guess if you could tell us what the book's about, that, that's the yes, first thing okay. you should ask. My best friend found her 12 year old son hanging horrible, which I mean, this mm-hmm. makes it sound like a really a bummer of a book, but mm-hmm. she and I were brought up very spiritually to believe that, you know, death is part of the bigger cycle of life, that you'll be reincarnated, that you go when you're supposed to go and that, you know, and rather than grieve, you should be grateful for the time that you had with that special soul, however time, it, however long it was. But when her son died this way, it was crushing. And I felt like a really bad friend because I just had no words. I couldn't think of anything to help in any way. And I started journaling every day about my frustration and in, in wanting to get find some words to make it feel better. And then his funeral was just like, wow, people were blaming her and, you know, shaming her. And like, why didn't you get him support if he was depressed? Why wasn't he on medications? And so it was a whole nother level of, there's not just a death, like a suicide is a whole different kind of death where there really is a lot of blame. So one day as I was journaling away, I started hearing Uh, her son talking to me, telling me that my journal was the start of a novel. And 
he stuck with me <laughs> for many years because he wanted his story out there. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily besides the way he died. And it's a mystery. So I don't want to tell you um, how he actually died. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the boy in question in my novel was really into Inuit wisdom. And so his sister, who just doesn't believe it's a suicide, is kind of hell bent on figuring out what happened to him because it was her best friend and soulmate. And if she would know if he was suicidal, obviously. Mm-hmm. So something else had to be going on. So she just wants to figure out what it is. So she interviews everybody. She starts reading all of his Inuit books. Uh, the Inuit believe that you can transform yourself, you know, into animals and back again. So she starts seeing a wolf. She lives in Northern Minnesota there are wolves there, but it's still unusual to see one at the times of day that she's seeing this one wolf. So yeah, it's her, it's sort of her, her growing up, her coming to understand, you know, what, what death means to her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually sort of, it doesn't really matter how someone dies, you know, they're here, they're not here. And hopefully they're always around us. That's what I believe. And yeah, so it's, I think it's a really uplifting book. And, you know, I've been just hearing so many people who've told me that it's helped them so much with the death of a loved one, which is exactly why I wrote it in the end. So it's really great to hear. And all of the pros, my, my author proceeds go to the Wolf Conservation Center. So no, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I uh, I lost my late brother, so yeah, I I definitely will will check it out. Yeah, so yeah, a decade ago, but it, it was a long it was a long road to uh, to get over, and I still miss him you know, to this day. Yeah, so I, I can I ask you, going from like writing legislation or when you worked in D.C., did you fight it hard to switch over and write a novel? I think I always wanted to be a writer um, when I was seven, I wrote my first book about a bunny. And I remember showing it to my dad and he was like, well, it's not a very good story and writers don't make any money. And I really like listened to him. And I didn't write again, although it was always in the back of my head that I wanted to make a story up and I couldn't really find my story. I just couldn't figure out what my story was going to be. And so when her son came to me, it was so opening because mm-hmm. it took me a while to accept that this is what I should be doing. But once I did, it felt so right in so many ways. And it took a long time to admit to anyone that this is what I was doing with my life because I hadn't done anything like this before. So I was kind of sneaking and writing it and not, you know, mm-hmm. an hour here, an hour there, which is not a very good way to to write a novel. And when I finally was like, okay, I'm jumping in with two feet. I'm actually right. going to go rent an office and I'm going to show up every day between nine and five and you know, not making other appointments, I'm going to be serious about there. The whole thing started coming together and it was really magical, actually really mm-hmm, great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then where can our listeners find your book? I, I, I would assume Amazon. Amazon anywhere else. You can go to my website, which is MarthaHuntHandler.com. Yeah. But it's pretty much everywhere. There's audiobooks. Awesome. Also, yeah. And I'll, I'll definitely put the links in our show notes. And I, and I did want to tell our listeners that, uh, the wolves. What was the the YouTube video? The wolves that change rivers. I will. How wolves change rivers. How wolves change rivers. I will embed that in our website too, so perfect. Our listeners can go there and watch it. So, 
where, what's the future of, of wolves in the United States and Mexico? What, what are you seeing? Like, I guess the, the, the red wolves, the Mexican gray wolves, and then the gray wolves. I want to stay incredibly positive and believe that as horrible as what happened in Idaho, I feel like it has woken up so much of America to what's going on. And I know that if like our, the outreach that's happening at the Wolf Conservation Center and my personal, how many people have reached out to me since then, that maybe this needs to be what shakes people up to appreciate the wildlife and that, you know, that wildlife is for all of us to enjoy, you know, not the people in Idaho to just wipe it off the planet. Like that's not okay. So yeah, I think we, you know, you got to get political enough to, to care, to write some letters, to get on the phone. Um, You can go to our website to learn more about, you know, what, all the steps you can take to try to change these things. But I'm trying to stay really hopeful. I'm hoping North Carolina will be soon coming up with their plan and they're going to release. Um, I think New Mexico is going to be starting to introduce some adults, which will really help um, move the population along further. And, and the other states I hope are going to be shamed into changing their behavior. And hopefully we'll get the, head of the Department of Interior to bring wolves back to the Federal Endangered Species Act. Yeah. And so, you know, how can our listeners help? I mean, help the Wolf Conservation Center and then also just help wolves in general. So if you go to our site, there's, you know, you can make a donation, obviously. Um, You can adopt a wolf. There's all different ways that you can, you know, support us. And we directly support um, a bunch of lawsuits that are going on. You can also see what the, you know, sign up so that you get uh, some emails that'll help you contact various uh, state individuals and federal individuals who make it really easy to sign petitions and, um, you know, support or uh, go against legislation. I think, you know, that's probably the best place to start. Great. And is there any social media you want to plug? Any like Facebook groups or I don't know. Yes, whatever. we're on like every single platform. We yeah. Have <laughs> great Facebook followers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just Wolf Conservation Center. Same um, Instagram mm-hmm. and yeah, Twitter. We're, we're pretty much everywhere. And that, I mean, that has been huge for us. And we have uh, webcams in most of our enclosures now. So we're about the only ones that have that. And we did it initial just because we just wanted to know what our wolves were doing mm-hmm. because we keep, we keep the other ones completely off exhibit and we can't even see what they're doing most of the time. So this allows us to take sneak peeks, but they have become huge. I mean, we quickly went from like 350,000 followers. And now I think we have 6 million on Facebook. Nice. So, That's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, we'll definitely put those links in there so our listeners can can follow you and see the wolves on camera because I, I used to do that all the time. I, when I was a professor in my office, I'd be like, oh, and I'd pull up because I did some webcam work with, with my studies with animal behavior, but I would always go like to Africa and, and just see what the elephants were doing that day. It was amazing. So yeah. Three hours later, you're like, okay. Really oh, I got to write this paper. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot to teach class. Oh, I'm sure my students were crying. Yeah. <laughs> so now they all know where I was that day. No, I'm just kidding. Well, Martha Hunt Handler, the board president of the Wolf Conservation Center, author, Winter of the Wolf. Thank you for spending an hour with us. 
we're going to definitely follow up with you, you know, maybe in a year and, you know, see what's going on with, uh, you know, this legislation in, in the United States and then also internationally. But thank you so much for your insight. You're so welcome. I've loved being here. And I hope in a year from now, I have just amazing, wonderful news to report. Yes, please, <laughs> please. <laughs> so take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye.